Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I have the incredible honor to welcome Graham Pierce as my guest. Graham is the director of Membrane Consultancy Associates, a consultancy practice bringing expertise and guidance in membrane technology. Actually said differently, with 40 years experience in membranes, Graham could simply be defined as a Bible. But you're quickly going to realize that by yourself. In this week's episode, we put membrane bioreactors under the spot. Thus, Graham will tell us how membrane treatments evolved from a joke to a must-have and how a couple of lonely prophets actually defeated all odds to impose membranes in wastewater treatment. He'll guide us through the perks of membrane bioreactors and explain why MBRs swiftly took off in industrial applications and countries like China. But you'll see that there's so much value packed in this episode that this summary really can't cover it all. We address the anatomy of membrane bioreactors, we discuss polymeric and ceramic membranes, flat sheet and hollow fiber, we learn that yes, actually size matters, we touch the limits of MBRs and Graham proves to us why wastewater reuse will become mandatory. To be honest, when I was reviewing my notes, I was simply highlighting every single part of that interview. I hope you love it as much as I did. Now, before letting our sponsor share his word, I'd like you to share your word. If you like the podcast and loved this week's interview, then share it with two of your peers or friends, grab their phones, subscribe them to the pod, or come say thank you to Graham for sharing his passion under our weekly infographic post on LinkedIn. That way, we all drive water awareness a bit forward, and I'll be able to keep convincing guests like Graham to share their knowledge with all of us. And that's actually up right after this. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. So hi, Graham. Welcome to the show. Hello, Antoine. Actually, you know, I always like to start with a postcard. And in our short conversation before starting, you mentioned you are not that far away from the, the Heathrow Airport. And I'm just wondering, in these strange times, uh, did you have the chance to pick a flight over the past six months to one year? Uh, well, absolutely not. Not from Heathrow. I suppose my only flight has been, we had a short holiday flight out of Stansted between lockdowns uh, during last summer. But Heathrow used to be a very common place for me to go to do my international business. And um, that's been out of the question for the last year, unfortunately. <laughs> The cool thing for our listeners is that for once we have someone that pronounces English like it should with the real <laughs> lovely British accent. So you are in Oxfordshire, right? That's right. I, I'm in a small village in South Oxfordshire. I've lived here for more than 20 years and I was at uh, university at the University of Oxford. So uh, I've come back to my roots by coming to live here. So it's interesting because a couple of episodes ago, we had an interview with Cambrian Innovation, which is named after Cambridge, but not the Cambridge from 
the UK, the Cambridge from the US. So it's good to see that we are coming back to the real roots. So Oxford, <laughs> like uh, established um, university background. I mean, here we are in good old Europe. So so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's good. Actually, you're a membrane specialist, and without trying to be insulting with your age, um, <laughs> you have a 40-year track record, which is amazing in that field. First, let, let me verify something. You know, when I was preparing for this uh, interview, I found out, to me, membranes was invented in the, in the 60s or 80s, and I found out that they are around since the 18th century. Is that right? Yes. Obviously, to be commercially useful, a membrane has to be very carefully controlled. So the pore size has to be precise. You need a narrow range of pores of the particular size that you want. So you want a narrow pore size distribution. And that was a difficult task to achieve. Um, I think in Germany in the 1920s, there was a commercial development of UF membranes. And I think that was probably one of the earliest really strong developments and uses of of membranes. But it, yes, it's much more recent that we have a real commercial rollout of, of membrane technology. And talking about yourself, when was your, your first encounter with membrane technology? So straight after my doctorate at, uh, at Oxford, I went to BP Chemicals Research in Hull, and they said, well, we've got a we've got a new project that we want you to start up. It's looking at separation technologies for the oil industry and the chemical industry. So the brief was across all, all separations technologies. I must confess, I hadn't really heard of membranes at that point. They weren't commercially used very much at all. There were little specialized US companies on the whole that had membranes for very sort of specific niche applications. So it looked as if it was an awful long way off from possibly becoming applicable for BP. So I did work on membrane developments there, but also other separation technologies like pressure swing adsorption and crystallization and other things like that. So starting on that R&D side of things, then you evolved to other parts of the industry with the commercial application, and now your consultancy. So can you guide us through your, your path? <laughs> so BP became excited about separations research. So we had our little group in Hull, where I started with BP Chemicals. And then in other parts of BP, they also had some researchers who started working on, on separations. And by 1988, there were 80 people working on research in BP. So this was immensely costly for the company. And they thought, well, we need to get some payback for all this money that we're investing in in separations research. So they decided to form a BP Ventures company, so a standalone subsidiary within the group. And I was the process engineering manager of that company. But soon after setting it up and spending another vast fortune on helping us to set it up, they decided, as BP, as oil companies uh, often will, they decided to have a, a change of direction and they tried to sell the company. And we put the finance together and we did a management buyout. So 
that was a tremendous opportunity because, you know, we bought no expense spared, all the office furniture, all the equipment. So we were incredibly well equipped for a startup company. And they basically let us have it for uh, next to nothing. Um, so thank you very much, BP. <laughs> <laughs> And how did you develop from there? So you were all of a sudden a startup in, in the membrane field and in the, was it already in the water field at the time or what was the intended application? Right. Good point. Because, I mean, we, we had struggled, to be honest, in BP research to get our efforts in separations technology implemented. Obviously, oil companies and chemical companies rely on distillation and they were looking for much lower energy alternatives, but it's it's extremely difficult to get the business units to adopt anything that's anything like a, a new or novel approach to do anything. So we felt we were uh, hurling ourselves against rocks, basically. And we decided when we were set up as a separate venture company, and especially after we became independent of BP, we decided to focus instead on the water market because that was a much more clear-cut and well-defined market. I mean, they too were in the water market. They too were very reluctant to adopt new technologies. And I remember in the early 90s going to potential municipal water companies in the UK and trying to promote the idea of using membranes. And they literally would laugh at me and say, well, this is never going to happen. And then just within two or three short years, their attitude changed completely because of cryptosporidium. That, it was all simply down to that in the UK and in the US. There were some outbreaks of this is a, a microorganism, which is a parasite. It's about uh, four microns in diameter. It's small enough that it can get through conventional treatment, but a membrane is a complete barrier. So that was a tremendously strong driver, this concern about cryptosporidium. Uh, we had outbreaks in the UK and the US, and then we got legislation, which was designed to ensure that companies removed it completely and with total security. And that was the driver for membranes. So even though it was still an expensive technology at that stage, once you've got the driver, then the prices start to tumble because it's not just one company rubbing their hands and saying, oh, well, that's great, the prices are high, but you have to do it, that's fantastic. But you've got other competitors coming in and the prices drop like a stone and uh, quite soon uh, membrane technology was, well, it was still a little expensive, but it was becoming more comparable and more acceptable for the user. So that was a membrane for drinking water. So I guess uh, ultrafiltration if you remove cryptosporidiums, right? That's correct, yeah. So was it used to replace sand filters or what was the application? In a way, it was replacing sand filters. But basically, in regard to cryptosporidium removal, the sand filters weren't doing enough. So it had a unique niche within the marketplace. So if you had maybe... If you said, well, 5 or 10% of the water sources in any particular region or country might be susceptible to cryptosporidium, then the legislation said, well, on those 5 to 10% of sources, you have to put membranes. So membranes 
sort of competed in those early days with sand filters, but they competed at the at the margins where you had these difficult challenges and where the sand filters couldn't really do it. Mm-hmm. So th- that was the big kick in, in the membrane technology, which was suddenly existing on the water market. And how did it develop from there? I mean, at that time, so you were just launching your startup, best equipped startup, but still a startup. And how did it evolve from there? Well, so the, the startup actually grew like crazy in the 1990s because so, so from, yeah, <laughs> because from tiny little beginnings. And it's not, I mean, it's not just our company, but all of the membrane companies at the time uh, had a similar roller coaster of a ride. And a lot of those companies had great success at establishing their technologies and became you know, reasonably sized companies in the course of the 1990s. So you could say that around 1990 itself, you began to see the emergence of these drivers. You had the problem of cryptosporidium. Then by the mid-90s, you had legislation, especially in North America and the UK. I think in continental Europe, the cryptosporidium wasn't recognized in quite the same way. It didn't seem to be causing quite as many problems. But then in continental Europe, it was more a question of getting a virus or microorganism barrier. Yeah, I was going to say the the colloids and the the viruses. And sort of moving away from relying on chlorine as a disinfection barrier. If you had a membrane barrier, you would be less reliant on chlorine. So that was the big driver, especially in the Netherlands and in France. And they adopted membrane technology in their drinking water industry. So their driver was a little bit different to uh, the UK driver. But I think uh, the UK driver had real teeth because the government had recently privatized the water industry. And then having let them off the leash, they then had this great big hammer or club to beat them with and say, having made you private, you now have to do this and you have to meet this requirement. I mean, it was a it was a very dramatic day. So, uh, some uh, one of my colleagues described it as being like being on a start of a of a race, and you're all lined up, and then someone presses the starting gun, <laughs> and <laughs> off you go. And it was literally like that. It was a crazy sort of gold rush day for the uh, for the membrane companies. And what brought you ultimately to consultancy? I've always been interested in looking at the whole field of an issue. So obviously, if you're with one company, you become an advocate for that company. But my type of personality is I like to look at the other competitors' products and and I like to sort of praise them for their (laughs) good features, even though I might also be talking against them for their bad features. So I like to have this overall position where I'm not necessarily completely reliant just on my own advocating my own product or whatever. I like to have this overview. Mm -hmm. And now you you have your own consultancy for over a decade and you dedicate to membranes. That's right. Yeah. So in 2005, I decided to launch the consultancy. And the idea was that I would help, basically help the practitioners of membranes. So people who were either supplying membranes or using membranes and help to improve their experience because 
as with any new technology, you know, I've uh, given a rather gold-plated, uh, rosy view of things. But it has to be said that in those early days, in the initial gold rush, as I describe it, there were some missteps because people were too aggressive in the designs of some of the plants. And maybe some of those early products had some innate weaknesses. So if you combine product weakness with aggressive design, clearly a proportion of those plants are not going to work out very well. And so I suppose my consultancy was developed around the idea of advising suppliers and users and trying to get the market to sort of rein itself in a little bit and be more realistic, be less aggressive in its design and to encourage suppliers to improve their products. Of course, they didn't really need my encouragement. They were trying to do that anyway. And eventually, after the first few years of the market, you know, you have to say that all of those suppliers that had initial issues on the whole managed to sort those issues out. So the products became better, more reliable, more resilient. And meanwhile, designs have become less aggressive. But yeah, so basically, that's what my consultancy was focused on. It was trying to improve the experience of using membranes. Actually, we've touched this clean side of the membrane world so far. But I'd like today in in the deep dive to look at another part of the membrane market, which is the membranes used, uh, I guess, mostly in wastewater treatment. But you're going to tell me that probably it's not only the case. But I'd like to dive into the membrane bioreactors, or MBRs. And there, I'd like to apologize in advance because I have to ask simple and simplistic questions. So please don't worry. I'm the stupid here. So (laughs) I'm not insulting you, I hope. But sometimes you'll see that my questions are really simplistic. I think I answered now my first question, which is what MBR stands for. But first, is my way to understand it correct? Is it membrane bioreactor? That is correct. So... A membrane bioreactor is basically combining the biological reaction stage of wastewater treatment with a membrane barrier. And so we shorten that by just saying membrane bioreactor. So it's an interesting development that in parallel to the frenzy around membranes in clean water in the 1990s and getting ready for the drinking water market, there was another frenzy happening in the neighboring market of wastewater, which was around companies trying to get a membrane technology applied in wastewater. So that ran in parallel during the 1990s. And there was a very strong advocate at that time, of course, still present, but under a different name. So the the initial advocate was Xenon. And they were basically, it was a bit like the lonely prophet in the wilderness. I, I always think of it like that, because whereas in the clean water side, We had governments on our side, we had legislation on our side, and we had a whole industry turning to us in in great excitement that we could solve their problem. On the wastewater side, the Xenon people were basically telling industry, this is what the future is going to look like. And for a long time, nobody paid much attention to them or didn't really accept what they were saying or were saying it's going to always be too expensive, it's never going to work, it's too technically difficult. So they didn't get the legislative drivers that the clean side got. 
Exactly. That would be my question. What was the driver? Why were they so strongly convinced that that was going to be the future if they didn't have neither the industry nor the regulation that had their back? So there's two, eventually you could say there's two drivers in wastewater treatment. One is that the discharges of our treated wastewater to rivers needs to be improved. So the driver for that came from, in the European Union, this is, came from the EU Wastewater Treatment Directive. I think that dates to 1991. The 2000 framework. Oh, okay. oh, oh yeah, because you're thinking, okay, the Water Framework Directive is 2006. So there was a much earlier piece of legislation which was very important for wastewater treatment in terms of discharges, and that was the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive. Okay. And so... But it didn't say to companies, okay, you're doing it like this with conventional technology. That's no good any longer. You need to switch to membranes. I mean, you couldn't possibly read that into the legislation. And implementing the legislation, you could do it with the old technology. So you could say it's sort of a driver. You basically have to improve standards sort of bit by bit, case by case, but it's not a sweeping statement. So that was the first that was the first type of driver, the discharge improvement driver. And then the next driver, which has only really come to pass in very recent years, is the driver for reuse. Actually in the European Union, we're only just getting now in 2021 we're only just getting our first real legislation that is going to control reuse quality and really encourage a reuse. Up to now, it's always been very sort of approximate, if you like, and sort of loose. The driver has not really had any teeth. Now, at last, there's a proper legislative reuse driver. But, you know, we're in 2021, so MBRs had to become established without even though you know reuse would be their you know one of the primary objectives potentially for MBRs, it's not had legislation behind it to make people adopt the technology. So where does an MBR fit into a treatment frame? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a good question because, I mean, it, you know, you could say, well, conventional activated sludge is the combination of biology, bacteria and nutrients. The bacteria and the microorganisms break down the nutrients. It creates sludge. You have a big tank. You rely on gravity for a lot of those solids to settle. You then might have a sand filter that would remove some, but not all of the remaining solids. Then you have a treated wastewater. So that's the existing status quo, if you like, from more than 100 years ago. When MBR comes along, it basically deletes the whole of the train and says, no, we can do it better if we start all over again with a much smaller bioreactor we do the same biological reaction as you might do in the conventional activated sludge, but it's all intensified. It has a much smaller footprint because the solids, rather than relying on gravity to eventually allow them to settle, you strike a membrane barrier so those solids can't get out by operating at too high a flow rate. They're prevented by that membrane barrier. So the whole thing becomes small and compact and efficient, but it means that all of that hardware that you installed from decades or even a century ago 
all those huge concrete tanks suddenly become redundant. So in a sense, in a developed economy such as in Europe, that's not good for introducing something that's so radical because you're not taking advantage of the infrastructure that was in there in the first place. And that's why in China, where they haven't had that infrastructure development, suddenly this solution makes tremendous sense that they can leapfrog everything that we've done for 100 years, use MBRs to solve all of their problems in a fraction of the footprint with much better treated quality, and suddenly they're in a better state than we are. So if I get you right, if you don't have existing infrastructure, all things compared, an MBR is the best solution over conventional tanks, activated sludge, clarifiers, the full treatment train. So if you start out of the blue, do it like the Chinese, and that explains why two-thirds of the MBRs in the world are installed in China. <laughs> well, that's right. And this it's an, an amazing statistic. And all of those big MBRs tend to go into China. I would think that that's probably true what you say. But I mean, one of the, the caveats is that if the quality of the discharge water is not that important, maybe you would still go with a conventional works. But in most cases, and especially in China, where they have polluted rivers and they're trying to reduce that pollution, if you put in a new wastewater treatment works, why would you not go for the Mercedes of <laughs> treatment? We would say the Rolls Royce in this country, but uh, sure. um, <laughs> why would you not go for the very best, get a really good treated water quality and also in a tiny footprint in comparison with conventional? Because that's so important in you know Chinese cities growing like crazy. You can't have these I mean, if you go to London, for example, you'll see some of those Victorian water treatment works, and it looks like they're occupying a number of football fields all joined together, you know, with their slow sand filters and so on. And they occupy so much real estate. I mean, it wouldn't be conceivable that you could build something like that these days. Uh, you know, so MBR and compact footprint makes a tremendous amount of sense. So the compact footprint makes it probably a very easy and logical go-to as well for industrial applications. Well, that's true. And of course, in industry, that footprint saving is an extremely important driver. And I would think, obviously, when you're in the municipal arena, what you're looking at is a 20-year life cycle, and you're balancing your costs, your operating and, and capital costs in a different way. In industry, you're looking at a much shorter time horizon and the drivers are different. So I think also in the industrial context, the treatment challenges can be more difficult because municipal waste is sort of similar-ish all around the world. Industrial waste varies according to what the factories are doing and what contaminants they're adding. So there's a lot of variation. And the MBR can certainly sort of match that reality and become very effective in those different circumstances. So even if the MBR still relies on biological treatment, it is much more resilient than activated sludge. I would say it is. It's because at the end of the day, the biology is closely related. It's not identical, but it's a similar situation. But I think in the MBR, because you've got a membrane barrier, you've got a degree of tolerance there that will ensure that you always will get a good treated water quality. 
no matter what's happening to the biology. I mean, you might sort of foul up your membranes and cause other issues. So, you know, there is definitely a lot of optimization that needs to be done, but uh, it certainly can perform very effectively. Talking about this membrane barrier, it's probably a good time to make some anatomy of these MBRs. Which type of membranes do you see the most applied nowadays in MBRs? So because we are very reliant on chlorine use in wastewater treatment in general, the membranes that we tend to use are based upon those polymers which are extremely tolerant to chlorine. And the best known example is PVDF. So we see a lot of membrane bioreactors, whether they have a flat sheet or hollow fiber formats, a lot of them use PVDF. One or two examples of some others. But it is an interesting question because there have been some developments recently in ceramic materials for the mainstream drinking water industry and seawater RO pretreatment. And those ceramic materials are beginning to gain a little traction. They haven't really done so in MBR very much, but there is just the sign that they might do. And the reason that there might be an interest there is that the ceramics allows you a very aggressive sort of uh, mechanical and chemical cleaning action. Actually, it makes me think of one of your excellent blog posts, which I read on your website, which was addressing this ceramic versus polymeric. And uh, from my understanding, from what you were explaining, there was a first battle in the 90s where polymeric had the, the upper hand because they were much more cost effective. But recent advances in ceramic membranes, and I had uh, LeakTech on that same microphone a couple of weeks ago, uh, where we addressed that, that same topic, and they said that they now have a better way to do ultrafiltration with ceramic membranes. So I think that all goes together in, in the direction of filling a bit more the furnaces. And if you fill more the furnaces, then the cost of ceramics also go down. Yes. So... um Is that the trend that we see for the close future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, basically, ceramic materials, um, the material from which the ceramic membrane is made, are very inexpensive and could potentially compete. What adds a lot of cost is the manufacturing process with multiple firings in a furnace at high temperature. And ultimately, that adds a lot of cost. You need quite a lot of labor input. You need expensive capital equipment. You need a long manufacturing time. So the ceramics end up being very expensive compared with the polymerics. But this is an issue of scale. And it's also, as you say, an issue of manufacturing optimization. That as you, as we improve the way we do things, it doesn't need that mean that we necessarily will have such a big difference in pricing as time develops. And we've seen ceramic prices fall, and they've become progressively more competitive. But then on the other hand, the performance advantages they offer certainly addresses a lot of the differential anyway. So I see ceramics becoming very important in drinking water first, And I didn't really think about the issue of wastewater treatment and MBR 
until actually you invited me to do this podcast. And I did a webinar training just earlier this week with a company called Technobiz. And literally, as I was presenting this ceramic option and basically saying, or sort of implying this will never <laughs> get anywhere. But as I was thinking about it, I was uh, presenting, I was thinking, actually, it's got some important advantages because one of the things that there's a disadvantage with the ceramic is that it's rigid. And if you think of an MBR operation with all those polymeric hollow fibers, when you do the aeration, which is the sort of core cleaning process for the membrane, but it's also needed for the biological action of the bacteria. When you do that aeration, the air moves the fibers, and as the fibers shake, the solids fall off. So the flexibility of the polymeric is inherent to the MBR and is a critical part of the process. And I was thinking, well, of course, with a ceramic, if you aerate you're not going to move the ceramic membranes, they're rigid, so it's not going to work so well. But of course, what you can do with a ceramic is that you can use an explosive backwash, and that's what's done in the in the water treatment sphere. And that explosive backwash is found to be many times more effective than the normal backwash of a normal membrane. So maybe as we start to think about ceramics in MBR, we might find that, in fact, they do extremely well. And as I gave my webinar presentation, I became more and more <laughs> enthusiastic about the possibility of ceramic. So I started out being sort of rather downbeat, and I ended up being uh, much more optimistic. So somehow we could be at a tipping point, and uh, that's the difficulty of, of the tipping points is that future will tell. But <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But of course, potentially being at a tipping point is what a consultant loves, because if you think you might be at a tipping point, you better go and ask a consultant to see, well, what do they think? So uh, I'm very, very pleased if we are possibly at a tipping point and I can um, maybe provide some advice. <laughs> when I was discussing with, with uh, Harris Skadrisbeck from LigTech, he was very enthusiastic about now being the tipping point. But of course, he might be a bit, um, as you mentioned, when you said that you wanted to have a look at the full industry and you went to consultancy, he's on the other end of the market. He's looking at his own solution. He's an advocate for his solution. Yes, so. yes he's an advocate. And yes, so yes. But anyway, I, I would certainly agree that we may be at a tipping point. But it, it, I mean, sometimes, I mean, we think of a tipping point as a sharp point between before and after. Of course, it might be a little bit more smoothed out, the transition. So I could see ceramics progressively making more impact and then becoming a dominant technology at, at a future point. I could definitely see that happening. You mentioned pretty fast that there there's flat sheet and hollow fiber. What are the perks and the drawbacks from both of them? Is it really a topic or is it really every specific manufacturer does one or the other and that doesn't make a big difference? Well, you've raised a couple of interesting points in that question. I mean, actually, just to that latter point about each manufacturer being an advocate of their solution, in the drinking water sector, we've had the creation of portfolio companies with portfolios of offerings. So Suez used to be the submerged PVDF outside feed format advocate for years and years and would basically argue against anybody with anything else. Gradually, by acquisition and internal development, 
they now offer membrane products over the whole range of options, of polymeric options in the field. And DuPont, also by acquisition, has done the same. So whereas before 2015, every company was basically an advocate of a particular format or configuration or type, since 2015, we've got these two portfolio companies. And gradually, I mean, obviously, the individual sales groups have the history of being either with one of the uh, legacy products or another. But gradually over time, it will integrate and they will begin to offer the best possible solution for each application, each region, etc. Now, in MBR, we are still in the position of companies being advocates and they basically offer a type of technology and would not offer the two options. So we don't have portfolio companies in MBR. So what we have is basically suppliers either use the hollow fiber concept or the flat sheet concept. With the hollow fiber concept, it's going to be more cost effective at very large scale. The flat sheet is going to be more cost effective at smaller scale and more difficult to treat feeds. There are Various pros and cons in relation to the tolerance of contaminants like fibers and hairs that might clog up the channels of the feed and other things. So there's, there's a number of pros and cons on each side. The two technologies have an overlap at certain, for certain projects, but on the whole, they're trying to address different parts of the market. So you get strong advocates for each one, but I think most people would agree that you know one or other solution is probably going to be the right solution in any particular case. Talking about part of the market, there's one that we didn't touch so far. You mentioned that the reason for China being such a big advocate of MBR is probably they didn't have the infrastructures that they need to build something. So an all-in-one solution like MBR was quite ideal for them. And you also mentioned that in Europe, we already had infrastructure existing in Europe, but it's also the case in, in Japan, in, uh, in South Korea. I was wondering, is MBR a suited solution for upgrades that you could just transform? I'm saying just, I guess it's not that easy that just saying just, but you transform an existing activated sludge plant by keeping the concrete tanks into an MBR by submerging some membrane modules. Is it something which is doable? And if yes, what's the, I mean, is, is it interesting to do it? So good question. And I think the answer is potentially you can do because the MBR has a smaller footprint. So if you took the tanks of a conventional activated sludge in an existing plant, you could upgrade its output many times by putting MBR units in the tanks. What you'd have to do is you'd have to have some segregation in the tanks and some division to create the different zones. So you'd have uh, bioreaction zones and you'd have membrane unit zones within the partition areas of the tanks. So when people have looked at the idea of changing tanks around and installing partitions, it becomes a bit tricky and a bit expensive. But then footprint, if you're in the middle of a city and you suddenly need three times the treatment flow, I mean, clearly you're not going to be, or it's very unlikely that you, you're going to be able to extend the footprint. 
if your solution needs an extended footprint, I'm sure the city planners would tell you to go and build your plant on the outside of the city, scrap the old plant, make a high-rise block, put a new, much bigger plant on the outskirts of the city. If you've got the option of retrofitting an MBR, and I think there's an example of this in the Netherlands where they actually did this. They took the existing footprint and basically upgraded its treatment quality and its capacity by putting in an MBR in the old place. I don't know whether they literally kept the tanks or whether they just effectively kept the footprint of the site, but it was a retrofit in that sense. But that's also an opportunity for process intensification. I was just reading yesterday a statistics about the wastewater treatment plants in the US, which said that 50% of the plants only have primary and secondary treatment. There's no tertiary treatment. And if you look at the flows, that's roughly one third of the wastewater in the US that's going through primary and secondary. So if you could upgrade your secondary treatment to an MBR, somehow the MBR with the the filtration element is also a tertiary treatment. Well, it's a tertiary plus, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, you could almost call it quaternary. (laughs) It's really upping the game of the treatment plant and giving an extremely good quality. I mean, really, I think at the end of the day, the driver for MBR in our modern situation is when you're contemplating reuse. So, I mean, that's quite shocking, the statistic you've given about all those plants being only primary or secondary, because we know that that isn't a very good treatment at all. And if you add tertiary, if it's a conventional tertiary, you still can't reuse that water. I mean, what a waste. I mean, it's good for discharging, but you can't uh, reuse it without further treatment. If you put an MBR, though, suddenly you've taken that water quality up to a very, very useful treated level, and it could easily and cost-effectively from that stage be reused. So that surely is going to be the driver for using MBR in that context. Actually, this reuse driver is also advocating for MBRs on the distributed side of the market, because you could locally have some shorter loops reuse in places where you have pretty nothing or limited treatment nowadays and uh, potentially water scarcity, you could, with an MBR, have an all-in-one that also delivers you a water quality pretty close to drinking water. So the, the, the final step to make it drinkable wouldn't be that dramatic. That's right. And and I mean, this is an extremely important distinction you've just made, because in conventional wastewater, size is king. That basically, if you operate at large scale, the costs of conventional treatment are less. And so you can't basically have conventional treatment at very small scale, or it's extremely difficult to set it up. So that's what conventional treatment is like. Membrane bioreactors are the completely opposite end of the scalability spectrum, that you can have the tiniest MBR, and it can be absolutely fine and be very reliable. Or you could have a large MBR, 
but that is basically just a combination of all those small MBRs with you know small economies of scale, but basically it's just getting more and more membranes and, and so on. So what you're saying about possibly not overly centralizing, but using MBRs as and where required if you need that additional quality in a more distributed sense, I think that uh, would be very attractive and would be a good solution to reuse issues in the future. Do I get you right here that MBR is pretty easy to operate? I'm saying pretty, not, <laughs> but still pretty easy to operate? Um, it's, I don't think it's not a problematic operation. Yeah, I would say, I would say it is. I mean, I think, I think at the start of MBR, people were concerned about treatment problems and operational challenges they were basically assuming that because it's wastewater with very challenging foulance for membranes, everything is going to be very, very difficult. And it's turned out that actually membranes are able to treat wastewater quite well, really. And as long as you know, you're know you not overly aggressive in the design, I would say that it's probably no more operationally challenging and arguably less operationally challenging than a conventional wastewater plant. So is it the kind of thing you can fully automate still to explore this distributed side of the market where you might be putting something somewhere and almost forget about it? I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit here, but the idea is that you cannot have you cannot afford to have an operator next to the plant 24-7. Well, I think it would be. I mean, actually, there are companies in North America. So in North America, where they've got a much more distributed population, you have a lot fewer people on your wastewater network. So in continental Europe, in the UK, we tend to rely for nearly all of our population on the municipal wastewater treatment system. We're all connected, basically. Nearly all of us are connected. And in America, that's not true. So you have an awful lot of single home, single community sort of bespoke treatment that is privately provided and not provided by the municipality. So they have looked at this issue that you're talking about. And I think these systems do have to be fit and forget because, you know, you're talking about homeowners, you can't rely on homeowners to be expert operators. In fact, they're hardly going to do anything, really. Well, you can't rely on them to do hardly anything in that respect. I like now to look at the negative side of things, you know, to be a bit more balanced. You've given us one case where you would not go for an MBR. It's if regulation doesn't push you to be too good with your effluent and your discharge limits, then probably a conventional treatment still is a cheaper way to treat the water. Would there be another case where you would say that MBRs probably are not the right solution? Obviously, some contaminants are going to be particularly problematic for the membrane and might be very fouling to the membrane. So I think on a case-by-case basis, there might be situations where it's too challenging. But I don't think that happens that often. What would be the contaminants? Something like filament bacteria? Yeah, well, so that sort of thing. And so oily contaminants. I mean, so MBRs can be challenged by some level of oil and grease. And of course, in a domestic situation, you know, you might find a lot of that material in the feed. And normally, the MBR 
handles that pretty well, and that's all very biodegradable. Of course, if you've got anything synthetic, a synthetic oil, that's going to be very bad because that's going to be difficult for the bacteria to break that down, or they might take a long time to break it down. So they might be the sort of situations where then a conventional treatment would be challenged as well. But uh, I, I just think that the membranes would not like that type of challenge. I think membranes don't like certain types of, you know, we use chemicals and polymer chemicals to treat wastewaters. Some of the chemicals that are used are not compatible with membranes. So we might get some bad fouling situations that occur there. But basically, it's almost a silver bullet. <laughs> I, think it, I think it is a very comprehensive treatment. It works well from what I can see in many, many circumstances. I mean, the fact that in China, if you look at the statistics of uptake in these massive works, if the technology wasn't working, we would, uh, you know, we'd know about it and there wouldn't be that rapid uptake. So they are very much bought into the use of MBR and I think it works very soundly. So actually, it sounds like sky is the limit for the MBRs, because if you look at it, uh, if 80% of the wastewater worldwide is still not treated today, that means that the leapfrog that you mentioned for China might be something suitable for any kind of place where today you don't have a treatment. And I think if you look at where we get our water from, we get a significant proportion from groundwater. I don't know what the percentage is, but it, let's say it's sort of 25 to 30%. And we get a larger proportion from fresh surface water. So that is making up, you know, nearly 100%. And then that makes together the groundwater and surface water, let's say that makes up 95%. And then the other 5% would come from what we call alternative resources, which would be reuse and desalination. So that's what the pie chart looks like at the moment. But the surface water basically should always be available to us. But the groundwater is a bit of a different situation because in many areas of the world, we've over-abstracted it. I mean, in India, it's, you know, it's a well-known massive issue. And groundwaters, if they are overused, they can deteriorate in quality. Some groundwaters are not replenishable. So it's like mining water. Once you've mined it, that's it. It's finished. So without doubt, the amount of groundwater that contributes to the total water available to humanity, that's going to decline. It must decline. And it can't be basically replaced by surface water because we are in many cases abstracting the surface water to the maximum possible that we can without destroying rivers and other ecosystems. So what I'm saying this for is to say we have no choice but to develop either reuse or desalination or a combination of both. Now, desalination is a technology of, of last resort in that it's so energy intensive in comparison with freshwater particularly, that you would not do it if you had a choice. But of course, we do do it because in many places we have no choice. But reuse sort of splits the difference between freshwater and desalination. Wastewater reuse has an energy which is a lot less than desalination and somewhat more than, than freshwater. But 
it would make a lot of sense to the water balance if we did a lot more reuse. And in parts of the world like Southern California, they're doing loads of projects now with indirect potable reuse. And in China, they're doing more, Australia, and so on. And we will see more and more reuse. And MBR is a very important part of that puzzle because you've got two choices. You can either take your conventional plant and put various stages of membranes after it, or if you're starting from scratch, you can use an MBR and then put some technology after it. So they are your two choices. And that's what the future holds for us, that we will have a very high increase in reuse over the coming decades. Well, the downside is that there's an adoption curve. When you see examples like uh, like Singapore, it took them some time. Now they are the world leaders when it comes to this direct possible reuse. But before every country accepts what Singapore, California, Texas, uh, Florida is accepting, there's still a yoke factor, if I might say so, to overcome. <laughs> I know that's usually the counter-argument I get because I'm a strong believer that this is our future. But, you know, the example I usually give to my colleagues when they're, they're asking me... Um, how we could be reusing our wastewater is, you know, the headquarter of the company I'm working for is, is in Schaffhausen and Schaffhausen is just next to the Rhine Falls. So when you go to the toilets in Schaffhausen, it goes to the Rhine. And actually when the Rhine goes to its delta in Rotterdam, 75% of that river is wastewater. And people in Rotterdam are using 98% of surface water for the drinking water. So they are using the Rhine as the source, which means they are doing a long loop reuse, but still it's wastewater reuse. And that's what we are all using for decades and centuries. But we just have to accept that the loop can be shorter and still the water be absolutely perfectly drinkable. Well, when you compare the treatment that when you have the short loop, of course, you are controlling the water completely in the reuse technology that you use. What we do at the moment in that example you gave of the Rhine going down through those countries, getting lots of wastewater, is that we then put on a simple conventional treatment plant at the end and we say, don't worry about it. The fishes and the, and the other things in the river at all the nasty stuff, don't worry. But of course, in that situation, I would be worried more because of the man-made chemicals. It's not the waste, the human waste that's in the wastewater that we should worry about. It's the man-made chemicals that sort of make their way into the wastewater that we don't address with conventional treatment, but we would address in a purpose-built reuse plant. So I think uh, indirect potable reuse, even if not direct potable reuse, I think indirect potable reuse will become absolutely the norm. And I would be 100% confident that that's a much better security and safety for our water supply than the status quo at the moment. Last question, Graham. Uh, when I was preparing for that episode, for the future of MBRs, what you just addressed is the future in terms of application and process. But I, was, I came across a couple of articles about anaerobic MBRs. Is that a thing and why? So this is throwing me a bit of a curveball <laughs> because you're taking me outside my comfort zone. Um, Sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, the anaerobic MBR is you've got a different sort of set of uh, bacterial colonies and a different operating environment. I mean, the reason 
that we had aerobic-based MBRs in the first place is the fact that you can use air to clean the membrane and you, you could use air to feed the aerobic bacteria. So you want air in both cases. It was hoped originally that the air might do both jobs, might both clean the membrane and feed the bacteria at the same time. It turns out that that's not actually effective use of the air. But nevertheless, the fact that you've got excess air in the environment doesn't detract or denigrate either part of the operating cycle. So it's all very synergistic. When you come to anaerobic MBR, you've got a set of bacteria that don't like air and need to be kept separate from air. And then you've got to clean the membrane. So you're moving into a very different type of concept. And I'm, I'm not actually sure how that is solved. I've not come across anaerobic MBRs running in practice. But it strikes me that that's a huge challenge. And you have to go to a completely different sort of membrane operation potentially with cross-flow or other types of cleaning might be a good opportunity for ceramics, actually, to run there because you might be more reliant on high-velocity backwash and not using any scouring because you can't use aeration. If you were using gas scouring, you'd have to use something like CO2 or nitrogen or something inert. So, you know, that might be the way that you would have to address it. It's a very different sort of field. And I think it's got applications in a much smaller segment of the total wastewater market. Well, you mastered that curveball. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot for... Do you think, do you think I got away with that? <laughs> no, you really... That was a deep answer to a topic where you, you, you mentioned from the beginning that um, it's a curveball. So I'm... Um, I'm just wondering if there's anything where I can ask you something you don't have the answer, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot for that deep dive. I think I do understand much better MBRs now. I hope that's going to be the same for our listeners. I propose you to switch to our final section with the rapid fire questions. Okay. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that section, I try to keep the question short. Ideally, you would keep the, the answers short as well, but I'm not cutting the microphone and I know that you have many interesting things to tell. So let me start with, with the first one. What is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? So I think the thing that's most challenging at the moment in the membrane water world is the fact that in Using UF, for example, for seawater RO pretreatment, we find that we get issues with RO biofouling. So you've used the UF, which is a barrier process, and it's a great pretreatment to the RO. The RO works well apart from the fact that in certain circumstances, you can get biofouling. And that's created by the overall process flow sheet not being right, that you've got chlorine upstream of the UF that breaks down organics and provides nutrients to the biofilm. And so I think that this is a tremendous challenge to the membrane desalination industry and one that's not been fully resolved and addressed. And I think there are solutions to it. And so it's a big problem that has solutions and we're not getting it right at the moment. So I find that an exciting 
and rewarding part of the job to advise on that issue. Well, you can uh, answer my second question as well here, which is what is your favorite part of your current job? Well, I suppose so. the things that I do, I advise suppliers and operators to improve their plants. I also, when things don't work out, I work as an expert witness. So I help to support legal teams in challenges. That's interesting. And I, I enjoy that. It can be a little burdensome. And I'm, I'm sometimes frustrated about the amount of money that's spent on trying to resolve the problem. Whereas if the money had been anything, a tenth of the money had been spent earlier on, the problems wouldn't have arisen. So that's a little frustrating. But I, I do I do enjoy that. And I'm involved in, in quite a lot of those sort of uh, activities. What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry? And you're not allowed to tell me the rise of MBRs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the rise of ceramics and the, so from a technology point of view and the move towards reuse, I would really like to see that gathering pace in my working life which is uh, <laughs> which uh, is uh, I'm still working full time but there there has to come a limit you know <laughs> even for consultants so you know that's a little challenge I would have is I would like to see reuse really being rolled out while I'm still active well I hope I will see that as well I'm a bit less optimistic than you are <laughs> um, What is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project? And what's the one you care the least? Well, I suppose uh, when you're working on a new project, I mean, the, my first uh, reaction is, how am I ever going to find out enough information <laughs> on this topic? Because it always seems a blank sheet of paper. You know, you're, you're desperately trying to think of similar things that you've done before that will, will help to form your opinion. But then gradually, as you start to get into it, all the pieces of the puzzle begin to fall into place. I mean, that's very enjoyable as that happens and you can begin to see the whole picture. I suppose the thing I like least, I mean, obviously, we all like to be interested and energized by our work and obviously things that don't interest us or energize us are very, very tedious. So um, I don't want to name particular sort of aspects <laughs> because that would seem wrong, but some aspects of work uh, can be a little tedious. But then, I mean, I like analyzing data, for example. When you start analyzing, it can become a bit repetitive. Sometimes I do a lot of troubleshooting in my job. I go to plants. I see all the, all the information. But rather than providing me on an Excel where I can just manipulate the data with a click of a mouse, maybe it's in hard copy. And you can imagine what you have to do to take all that hard copy and do a proper data analysis. It means getting your ruler out and measuring things, and it can be very tedious. But then as the picture emerges of the patterns in the data, I love that. I love to be able to see what the, the trends are and the movement of the data and to draw, be able to draw conclusions from it. So there are perks to digitization, but still being an archaeology uh, sometimes is <laughs> right. it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? 
Well, I use um, global water intelligence uh, information a lot. It's quite a sort of commercially oriented and generalized in a lot of cases, but then they have resources like desal data, which is you know, a lovely spreadsheet with a vast amount of project information of all of the desalination plants in the industry. And so, you know, if you really need to know about projects and what technology is being selected, I like to use that. It turns out GWI gets recommended in two-thirds of those podcasts. But um, <laughs> well, well done, GWI. <laughs> I, I subscribe to that. I mean, uh, I'm a fan myself, so... <laughs> Would you have someone to recommend that we should definitely invite as soon as possible on that same microphone? Well, I think um, Paul O'Callaghan of Blue Tech Research is a very uh, knowledgeable, broad, uh, he's got a broad sort of spectrum of interests within water. So I think he'd be an interesting guest. He just completed his doctoral thesis, which was on innovation in the water industry. And I was one of the referees for his thesis because part of the doctorate looked at early stage membrane data. So he asked me to be a referee to that. So that was very interesting. And I think he's got a good, broad perspective. So I make sure to reach out to him. Actually, uh, he was on my radar somehow. So <laughs> Okay. Um, so thanks a lot, Graham. It's been a pleasure discussing with you. I'm sorry because um, I would have had so many more questions and right now I'm already abusing of your time. If people want to uh, reach out to you, where can they find you the best? Okay, so, well, I've got a website which is called membraneconsultancy.com. I am diligent at keeping it updated. I write a blog which is posted on the website I'd love anybody to look at the blog. I write on these issues that I'm talking about on reuse and ceramic membranes have formed the subject matter of some recent blogs, for example, and uh, legislative uh, changes and, and, and things like that. So anything that I find is interesting in the movement of the industry. So you can contact me through the blog. There's a contact page or you can drop me an email. So my domain is Membrane Consultancy. So my email address through that domain is gpierce, G-P-E-A-R-C-E, gpierce at membraneconsultancy.com. And like always, you, you'll find all those links in the episode notes. Don't hesitate. I mean, uh, I've read not your full blog, but uh, I think over time I will. But everything I've picked within your blog has a really spawned my, my interest and developed new thoughts. So um, really thanks for that. And I cannot advise enough to have a look at what you're putting out there. And the other thing um, I was just going to mention was that I also do training and I just finished a series of uh, training webinars. So they were sort of one and a half hour webinars. They're all online, so they can be subscribed to through the company that uh, organized, which was Technobiz. So that's a Thai company and the webinar series is under their know-how webinar series. So I think if you're new to membranes and just feel that you want to get to grips with the basics of the technology, it's all there. It's laid, So everything I know is laid out in these 16 webinars. They're sort of like one-hour lectures with 
followed by Q&A. And it's laid out. They're all independent of each other, but they uh, follow in a sequence and it's a full introduction to this market so actually if you've been teased by by this episode now you have we, we scratched the surface if you want to go a bit deeper there's lots of matter in what you you have in your webinars and i've seen how you dealt with the curveball i can only imagine how you deal with the matter when you're fully at home so <laughs> <laughs> yes well uh, i had some practice <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna grab you for one more minute but i was wondering how do you manage to deliver so many webinars i mean uh, i've seen your your schedule it's amazing <laughs> it was very very exhausting and i did say to my wife when i finished i'm not going to do that again <laughs> so uh, because it's over three weeks and so every day there's this sort of very very focused activity it is hugely exhausting i do quite a lot of real life training workshops and so on And of course, you are energized by the students and the discussions that you have. And so that's also can be quite exhausting, but it's exhausting in a different way. Of course, I've been forced online by the pandemic, but I think it was, I wanted to put the material online because then it's there forever. And it means that I don't have to keep reproducing the same teaching notes. Makes sense. <laughs> Well, Graham, it's been a pleasure. So thanks a lot. And I hope to uh, have the opportunity to talk to you in a close future and maybe have a look at the clean side of the membrane world after digging into the, the dirty side. <laughs> okay, well, that, that would be fantastic. And actually, I mean, it's been a real pleasure to do this interview. Thank you very much. Your questioning has been nice and kind. <laughs> so, and uh, has hopefully teased out all of the key issues. So that's very good. And thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.